Hello, welcome. Today's a very special day. I'm Marcy Sklove, and I'm sitting with my husband, Richard Sklove, and we are going to be discussing his new book, Escaping Maya's Palace, Decoding an Ancient Myth to Heal the Hidden Madness of Modern Civilization. This book has been a labor of love and intense work for over 10 years. And I know I'm biased, but it is an amazing book. Um, Richard pulls together a lot of different literature from different disciplines. He adds his own analysis to discuss and try and, and talk about the ills of our society and what we can do about it. So I'm very excited to be sitting with you and welcome. Welcome, it's nice to be with you. <laughs> All right, so this first question is very broad and it's sort of a little bit silly to have you answer it. It doesn't have to be an answer in one, in one sentence. But what's the book about, Richard Deere? <laughs> what's the book about? The book is about what went wrong with modern civilization over the past few centuries, uh, specifically psychologically what might have gone wrong. And it comes out of, you know, waking up over the last 50 and 60 years every day and wondering why is it so nuts? Why do we <laughs> mess up so much as a species and as a society? And, uh, and this research has taken me a few hundred years back and um, I'm building an argument that's uh, the, the disruptiveness of the global economy that started to emerge 400 years ago has <clears throat> quietly, without any of us noticing it, altered trajectories of psychological development. So we're somewhat different kinds of people than the kind of people who existed 400 years ago, <clears throat> not just because of the content of the ideas in our minds, but because of the structure and functioning of our minds, that there's been an alteration in psychological development. And it's not particularly advantageous to our well-being or happiness. Sure, sure. But let's start with the big picture, um, talking about the global situation and what you found in your research um, regarding, like, let's just start with capitalism. <laughs> um, so what does, what does capitalism do to add to the dysfunction of our inner life and our ability to develop and grow and thrive? I mean, a main kind of little discovery I made was to pay attention in a different way to something historians have known for a long time, which is that um, what we call a consumer society in which masses of people are running around in a marketplace buying lots of stuff and doing whatever they have to do to earn enough money to function as consumers, that emerges in various places around the world around 400 years ago. Mm -hmm. And what I noticed is that at the same time a consumer society emerged, something else emerged for the first time, which was mass levels of addiction. If you look at the global economy that you know starts to emerge in the late 1500s, early 1600s, a lot of what's going on at that, in that pre-industrial global economy is moving 
addictive stimulants around the planet and producing lots of, there's tea coming in from, from, uh, from China to Europe, and there's coffee and sugar and tobacco being grown in the Americas. And the importation, growth and importation of those kind of addictive stimulants turns out to have been a very major part of the global economy. Um, and so you have a kind of an interesting phenomenon of why is it that consumer insatiability is emerging at the same time that addiction is emerging for the first time on a mass basis. And one of the things I noticed, if you study about modern addiction, is that addiction these days is understood in part as a disorder in psychological development. Mm -hmm. And what, what I kind of come to build an argument is that when you see addiction and consumer insatiability emerging at the same time in the same place in history, and one of, they look similar, they both involve a lot of craving. Uh, that can't f finally ever be f fully satiated. It goes on forever. That happens at the same time. If one of them is, a, is it involves a disorder in psychological development, it occurred to me, maybe both do. Mm -hmm. And I build an argument that what's really going on is that the intensity of ego identification, the sense that I, I, each of us is a small separate me who's very different from the, his surroundings or her surroundings and everything else. That steps of being bounded off and separate psychologically, that emerges as a result of the disruptiveness of the global economy hmm. and the, the self-bounding that, that goes on, the stronger self-boundaries leads to a sense of being cut off and empty inside hmm. and that expresses both in consumer insatiability and in a greater propensity to addiction, um, which has some interesting implications because uh, if you step back with that, that says a lot about global capitalism right, right there because um, addiction is a problem. If we, if, you know, certain types of addictions are, are problems. Um, the thing about insatiability also being a product of capitalism mm -hmm. is the big story we tell about capitalism is that uh, it's the w greatest engine that was ever created for uh, addressing people's wants and needs. It produces lots of stuff. It's the way to satisfy our cravings. And, uh, and I'm sort of saying, well, actually, it's the opposite of that. That's an illusion yeah. because it's not satisfying our cravings. It's creating the psychology that's incapable of being satisfied. Right, right. So the whole economy is based on the need for humans to keep buying stuff. And so if they ever get satisfied, that would destroy the economy. Right, so, right, and because it turns out this intensification of, of ego, egoic bounding and, uh, and ego identification, um, is very is a very sticky type of stage in psychological development because the ego doesn't want to change it right. doesn't want to lose to, to the ego to move beyond strong ego identification into what in the spiritual world is moving into the domain of ego transcendence or or towards enlightenment mm -hmm. to the ego that that's a problem because dangerous. the ego perceives that as death as in, because it would be annihilation or weakening of the ego right so 
the economy depends on its ability, the, the modern economy depends on its, uh, on its ability to stimulate consumer insatiability, which means keeping us developmentally stuck in strong right. ego identification. Right. It's, a, it's a kind of a global system that's optimized to make sure that those of us who spend time meditating or doing other things to advance our spiritual or psychological growth, the economy's engineered to make sure it won't work. Right. <laughs> And even those activities or those paths are co-opted by capitalism. <laughs> There's that too. <laughs> and, and yeah, so we're all spending more money on the yoga clothes and on the different kinds of meditation and all of that. Um, okay, so this is a lot. This is a lot to take in. I want to ask you, you use the term in the book a lot, um, psycho-spiritual. And you're getting to some of that in what you've said so far. But can you just sort of say a little more, what does that mean, psycho-spiritual, as, as a way of identifying something? Yeah, well, to me, it's just an adjective. When, when we talk about our psychological development or psychological growth in our culture, when you get to the stage of moving beyond ego identification, we tend to say that's moving into, in from psychological into spiritual development. Okay. I think it's kind of arbitrary because in reality we develop as spiritual build, beings from from birth on. I mean, we're, sure. we're evolving. So, I just think it, it's just a way of sort of saying that I'm not distinguishing strongly between psychological and spiritual okay. development. To me, it's kind of a an integrated phenomenon. Okay, that's that's great. And when we talk about the sense of insatiability. You also, in the book, bring in some other factors, such as how the economy made people move around and the sense of dislocation and the other aspects. Could you talk a little bit about that and then also bring it in again to what is ego identification and how does all of those aspects affect ego identification? Well. It, the, it's, it, it appears to be that it's the, the disruptiveness of global capitalism, the fact that it, it, capitalist growth depends on new, new products and new businesses constantly emerging and competitively putting out of, out of business other ones. And in the course of that, uh, people's stability of communities gets disrupted, relationships among people get weaker compared to in previous societies. And, that disruptiveness has always been a challenge for people to adjust to. What I'm adding to that is sort of saying that difficulty of adjusting to the turbulence is compounded by the fact that we're, we're shifting and becoming different kinds of people. Mm -hmm. um, and the, it's, it's problematic in that um, the, the fact that the global economy is built on its ability to sustain our insatiability um, that has a bunch of ill effects. I mean, that it means that we're, the, the disruptiveness is a problem to adjust to. There, there have always been recognized, it's always been recognized the general story about, we tell ourselves about capitalism. On the one hand, 
it's great because it delivers the goods. That, there's a positive side. It right. A lot of stuff gets produced to distribute it. And we understand that there's a downside. There's always been a certain amount of injustice and inequality involved with capitalism. There's the disruptiveness and that's hard for people to adjust to. And nowadays, we understand that there's also environmental totally. effects. So there's a downside and an upside. But in general, most people have decided, yeah, but the benefits, getting the goods outweighs it. So we cope with the downside as best we can because we're getting the goodies. My book is kind of shifting that equation because it's saying there's a bit of an illusion about this idea that we're getting the goodies because we're actually never getting contentment. What we're getting is the psychology that means that no matter what we get, we always want something more. We're not capable of contentment. And that begins to shift the balance of how you look at capitalism because it means that the, the upside isn't somewhat obviously outweighing right. the downside if the upside actually means that everybody's psychological and spiritual development's being distorted and stunted. Right, and there's another aspect too of capitalism having so much power because basically politics and everything else says, well, let the markets decide that the markets have the, the power to determine how life goes forward in society. Right. So what you're describing is really another aspect of how that balance is not very equal if, <laughs> at the minimum. No, and the downside is more that I've said. I mean, the downside is partly that our further psychological and spiritual development is stunted. Right. We're prone to addiction. It turns out that this like, psychological con <clears throat> configuration that we've that the market puts us into also makes us much more prone to a lot of other uh, exactly. mental and physical ailments. So um, depression, anxiety, that which along with addiction are the big three mental illnesses of our time, they're much more prevalent than they have been in many other societies, sure. as far as we can tell. And with them come also, um, from, from addiction and depression, you also get suicide and greater propensities to obesity, to diabetes, to heart disease and cancer. It's, right. it's not that this shift in psychological development is the cause of all that, but it contributes to the fact, to sure. the incidence of all that. So in terms of the big picture about capitalism, one thing that's different about this critique of capitalism is we're used to the Marxist critique of capitalism, right. which says that there's winners and losers. This one is different because it's sort of saying actually everybody in certain respects is a loser because everybody, there, there are no winners in this game. Everybody's suffering to some extent from the increased prevalence of disease and from, and from the stunting of psychological development and from the fact that this insatiable psychology is feeding into the global political economic dynamics that lead to the big macro problems right. like climate like climate change sure. and the social alienation that leads to the opioid crisis and to the right. appeal of authoritarian populism yeah. it's all yeah. it's all tied up with generating a psychology which intrinsically makes no sense we've got an economy that produces all sorts of bad micro and macro you know, social effects in order to prevent us from evolving further <laughs> as human beings. I mean, it's, that's why I, the book is subtitled The Hidden Madness of Modern Civilization, sure. is that we run all sorts of risks in order to prevent something good from happening. Wow, that's right, that's right. So that's a good segue into this question. So the ego identification you have described as seeing, seeing oneself as separate and boundaried and 
there's another aspect of because the ego does not want to give up its, uh, you know, its power, its right. autonomy, that it's camouflaged. It's right. it's self um, self camouflaging. So talk a little bit about that that part. Well, I mean, in a way, it's sort of saying that I'm noticing this sort of historical story I tell where I'm noticing that there's a conjunction of the emergence of consumer insatiability and, and addiction and wondering why that happens at, at, at the same time. Okay, now I'm losing it. Give me the question again. Oh, sure. <laughs> that's fine. I know your mind kind of does that sometimes. I digress. That, that, that's totally fine. Where I was going with this was this notion of the ego identification and the, the efforts that the ego oh. puts to protect itself from annihilation, right. which is what, you know, in a way it looks like, that, that's what this looks like to the ego. So then the question is about how it's self-camouflaged that this is an issue. Right. And then we can expand on that, how it gets camouflaged and, you know, almost in a prohibition. Right. Later, but go ahead with this yeah, first. Well, the fact that I'm writing this book now, I mean, people have been aware that addiction and consumerism emerge at the same time and haven't made anything of it. That's in a way because we, uh, the culture prevents us from developing the perspective I've got. It turns out that egoism has this amazing capacity to preserve its kind of sovereignty yes. and prevent ego, you know, prevent us from building a society that would be more conducive to ego transcendence because it, it doesn't want that project to succeed. It wants right. us to stay bound in this tight little self because it's afraid of, of, of the alternative. And this gets expressed for me most dramatically in the fact that to write this book, I'm taking psychological ideas drawn from Eastern spirituality and using that as a lens for looking at world history and social theory. In modern academia, that's against the law. Right. Uh, you're not allowed to take seriously the fact that, I mean, lots of academics, most academics self-identify as spiritual. Lots of them take yoga classes and, and, and meditate. But in the classroom, in their research, they are not allowed to admit that it's possible to transcend ego identification. Um, if, you, if you do that, it's bad for your career advancement. You're not gonna get grants. You're not gonna be taken seriously by your colleagues. So basically, um, there's a taboo against writing a book like this, and it's not an accidental taboo. Sure. It's an act. It's it's exact. It's part of the system. This there's. Uh, it's part of how the ego has protected itself, which means protected anyone from taking on a project like writing this kind of book. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's really good. And another consequence of the prohibition, like in academia or in any context is just that then people, younger people coming up, they don't get a taste of what it looks like to not be in this, this idea that we are, we are bounded, that we are separate, you know? And you see it all, I mean, you see it everywhere. You see it in the daily news and in killings and in wars and all, you know, all of the different aspects of polarization and of authoritarianism. I mean, it's just so, it, it just expands from the individual to the whole world in such a big way, in such a big way. Wow. Um, okay, so another thing, so, you know, this is all pretty hard stuff, you know, the, like 
there's a lot that's wrong. <laughs> but one of the things I loved about the book was how in the last like third of it, you really, it's not just window dressing. You have some really good ideas about how to take the ideas of the book and incorporate them and use them to sort of make a dent on fixing society. So do you wanna, do you wanna talk a little bit about, about that? What, what, what are some of the proposals that you put in in terms of how we can work on this, these issues? When I move forward in time from you know, the history of a few hundred years ago to now, it, there seem to be th <clears throat> three main forces that have converged that lead to this kind of stabilizing strong ego identification now. The disruptiveness of the global economy is part of it. The inequalities generated by the global uh, capitalism are part of it because the winners in that case tend to get ego inflated. There's psychological evidence of that. And, mm -hmm. and also the inequality subjects everybody else to more disruptiveness. Um, so inequality, the disruptiveness of capitalism, and it's also compounded by modern technologies, which also have, the, um, have had the effect of, of distancing people from face-to-face, -face deep, stable social relationships. There's, more, there's a certain amount of technological attenuation of stable, rich community relationships and of experiential engagement with the natural world. Mm -hmm. And this compounds the, the egoic, the strong bonding in, in ego identification. It turns out then, if you wanted to soften our ego identification and give and make us less prone to all the illnesses that come with it and more able of continuing to grow psychologically, you probably want to have a, a, an economy that's less disruptive, that's more egalitarian, and where there's more a different type of relationship with technology, to opting more for technologies that allow experiential engagement with each other mm -hmm. and, and with the natural world. Well, it turns out for other reasons and having nothing to do with you know paying attention to psychological and spiritual growth lots of progressive organizations are working on these forces that i identify as psychologically problematic so there are mm -hmm. all sorts of groups w uh, responding to the turbulence of globalization by promoting more locally self-reliant and mm -hmm. resilient economies and of course, there are all the social justice movements that are working for addressing structural inequalities in society. That means that these groups are sort of addressing social justice or democracy or sustainability, various issues. They aren't thinking about psychological development, but it turns out that the activities and, and policies they're advancing Work, would, would accidentally work in the, exactly. in, in the direction of supporting healthier psychological and spiritual development. So it, it means that the argument, it both means that there's groups out there already advancing the kinds of proposals that look to me like they'd be helpful. And for them, there's an advantage because it means that they could make the argument that, hey, wait a minute, the things we're advancing because we care about social justice or democracy or peace or sustainability, if we did them all in, in, in coordination with each other, it would also have a beneficial effect sure. psychologically that would mean less of that downside you know, risk of, of mental and physical illness less being stuck cycle in our development. And if to the extent that people did become less strongly ego identified, we actually would become better people and mm. citizens. So in the long run, we'd be more prone to do behave in ways that it generally don't cause so many problems. And 
This sounds utopian, but I don't want to sort of say that I'm imagining that this could happen all at once, and if right. it did, it leads to a perfect society. No. But it's more that I do see that there are opportunities to, to restructure societies and the economy in a way that both would reduce the big, the, how the, com, the intractability of big macro problems like climate change and make it possible for us to be more contented, more evolved people. Yeah, yeah. So a practical, you know, step, how to get from here to here, in my mind, is local groups reading the book together <laughs> who have some common goal of their own, like people working on climate locally, people working on, on racial and social justice locally, that they read and see how, does, how do the ideas of the book touch them and what do they you know respond to and how can they use some of these things in their work and and also just paying more attention to how as individuals let, let, let's say working on a in a political movement how can they be kinder to each other and more in relationship and you know different ways of bringing that these aspects of the bottom line of we are not separate from each other, bringing that bottom line into the, any kind of, that kind of work. Well, yeah. I'll just, I'll flesh that out just one other Please. dimension, agreeing with all that. But, but also, in, I mean, I'm t I've just talked about the fact that <clears throat> there, are, there are lots of groups that are for other reasons, uh, you know, promoting proposals that I think would be slightly advantageous. Another group of people who might be interested is all of us who are involved with meditation or growth-oriented psychotherapy or anything that's trying to develop more as human beings. It turns out that the world is arranged more than we've understood to make sure that our, our endeavors aren't going to be successful. Uh -huh. And that means that we have more skin in the game for joining progressive social change movements. They, have the, they, they can look on us, if we aren't already in those movements, as a resource they can mobilize and mm. recruit because we all share skin in the game that we haven't understood. Wow. So yeah. there's a way to mobilize new groups of people into new coalitions. Yeah, that's really important. That's really good. Another just little piece I want to come back to is two or three times you've used the idea of the illusion, you know, the illusion that capitalism is great, other illusions you've, you've alluded to. And just really quickly, without getting into the whole thing, could you say like two sentences about Maya's palace? In the story, I mean, it, we didn't want to talk too much about the Mahabharata, but in the story, well, I, I, the lens, the psychological lens that I use for the for doing the critique of the modern world is an ancient myth called the Mahabharata, which is an ancient saga, arguably the longest book ever written. It's several thousand pages long from from ancient India, which just which has a which has a story in which there's a marvelous palace in which uh, the best, the most magnificent palace in the world, in which a very virtuous young king. Uh, starts to become a, amass a large empire, and then he's uh, tricked or seduced into uh, a gambling match where he gambles away the kingdom and, uh, and is for, forced into exile. 
Um, I unpack that whole story as yeah. an illusion because this magnificent palace actually is an illusion because um, he is a king, but he's a king who, who has become insatiably addictive for, uh, addicted to, uh, first of all, wanting to amass the world's largest empire, being recognized as king of the world, and he finally slips into a gambling addiction to which, uh, which causes him to forfeit the whole, the whole kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, but Maya's palace, this magnificent palace, is an illusion because uh, it looks like a magnificent palace, but it's really a trap in which he's trapped yeah. into strong, uh, insatiably craving uh, egoic identification. And so it becomes a metaphor for the type of global economy we've created. And this, this illustration is of a, a kind of decrepit, once beautiful, ornate, you know, very fancy palace that is sort of decrepit, but beyond it, the light is showing through and uh, there's there's a mystery, there's Mm -hmm. a suggestion. Wow, this is great. Thank you so much. I think we're sort of coming to the end. Um, I also just want to put a little plug in because at the end of the book, there is an interview with the author where a lot of the autobiographical information that got you to this place of writing this, what your own experience has been, which is extremely telling to some of the issues that you're discussing. And it's a great interview. So for those who want to read the book, I want to point that out as well. Um, Yeah, is there any last things you would like to say that I, I didn't remember to ask you about. <laughs> no, just, you know, in terms of the autobiography, just that it's a labor of love, but it's also kind of an assignment for the gods, from yeah. the gods. I mean, uh, the big projects I've done in my life are things where the gods basically, not in words, but they just, I get the, I get the impulse, the intuitive hit, like you're supposed to do this project. Yeah. So I didn't have a whole lot of choice about it. I know, <laughs> and something about their message to you sustained you in 10 years of discipline and keeping keeping the the flame alive to keep it going thank you thank you for coming in and doing this thank you it's really fun (laughs) (laughs) and also i really want to thank greenfield community television you guys are awesome and you make these interviews possible for us so thank you Well, when I was a little boy sitting on my mama's knee, she said, son, let me tell you about that bad staggerly. She said, son, 